The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a hot day in Houston, Texas, in June 2014, Catherine Martinez had just spent the day with her children, as well as her mother and sisters. She was clearing the air after ending things with her son's father, and was looking forward to getting back on her feet again as an entrepreneur. But Catherine's former lover wasn't used to being rejected. Join me now, as we take a look back into the life of a talented young athletic star. You'll learn how a washed-up former member of a successful boy band crossed paths with an ambitious dreamer, and how a household name became a legend once more, in the most heinous and tragic of ways. In today's world, a woman with the ambition to succeed can accomplish just about anything she sets her mind to, even if those goals might be a bit more unusual than some might expect. Something Mary Figueroa came to realize as she raised her three daughters into strong-willed young women. Ambition and determination came to play a significant role with one of her daughters in particular, Catherine. Catherine Martinez was born on January 15, 1990 in Chicago, Illinois, where she lived with her mother and two sisters, Emmy and Glenda. From a young age, Catherine was a highly active, outgoing girl with a passion for physical fitness. Her family were of Brazilian, Puerto Rican, and Dominican descent, and Catherine wore heritage proudly as she reached adulthood. Like any mother, Mary wanted her daughters to be successful in life and raised them with a strict sense of honesty and honor, teachings that instilled an appreciation for loyalty and trust in Catherine's mind and remained with her as she forged her way through life and friendships. Growing up, Catherine had her eyes dead set on reaching the very top. She wanted to become famous, and she had the drive and energy to get there. In her teens, Catherine began carving a path towards stardom through modeling, slowly building a name for herself. Although she was fiercely competitive, Catherine was also incredibly friendly, making it easy for her to make friends, even among those competing against her in shows. Catherine followed her passion for physical fitness and eventually became a fitness trainer, which opened a slew of doors for her. She developed her brand by promoting herself on platforms like YouTube and Instagram under the pseudonym Brasilia Martinez. Later, she also became a devoted bodybuilder, taking part in competitions and winning several prestigious awards. As she continued releasing videos on Instagram, Catherine began building a devoted fan base, drawn in by her passion, personality, and stunning beauty. But she had her heart set on adding another ambitious dream to her already full plate. She wanted to become a boxer as well. Her family couldn't help but feel proud of her, delighted to see her fulfilling her dreams. As children, Catherine and her sisters often listened to a popular R&B boy band, High Five. 
The five charismatic young men that made up the trendy group consisted of Tony Thompson, Roderick Clark, nicknamed Pooh, Marcus Sanders, Toriano Easley, and Russell Lamont Neal. In the early 90s, High Five were among the most prominent young stars of the decade, touring across the country, greeting scores of delighted fans. Five of their songs made it into the top 40 on the pop charts, and three of them made it into the top 10. However, trouble began to plague the group early on. 16-year-old Russell Neal, who primarily acted as a background singer, decided he wanted a more prominent role in the group. The producer and record label didn't agree, and so in 1992, Russell walked out on the group, determined to make his own way in the music world. But Russell found very little success. In order to successfully forge a solo career, he wasn't nearly as established as he needed to be. Nearly 20 years later, his fortune faced a drastic and fascinating twist. While in his 30s, Russell met Catherine when she was in her teens. Absolutely starstruck by the introduction, the 16-year age gap didn't face Catherine for a second, and the feeling seemed to be mutual. Catherine was a beautiful and professional model. She was also highly successful in her career and quite well known to the public herself. Although Catherine was ecstatic about how well she and Russell seemed to be getting along, her mother and sisters didn't share her enthusiasm. Still reveling in his fame from nearly a decade earlier, Russell had a confident swagger about him that annoyed Catherine's family. Her sister Emmy claimed there was something dark about him that immediately put her off. Catherine, on the other hand, couldn't stop talking about how wonderful she thought Russell was. She said that despite him no longer being part of a successful band, he was still well off financially. She also hoped Russell's residual fame would help boost her own notoriety. But Catherine's sister Glenda wasn't convinced. Russell may have been a part of a big-name band back in the day, but he wasn't exactly a household name anymore. Despite misgivings from the entire family, Catherine continued on with her relationship with Russell. In 2009, Catherine gave birth to their first child, a son they named Diego. In 2011, she gave birth to their second son, Raphael. Of all the prestigious titles Catherine had accumulated, the title of motherhood seemed to be the one she was most proud of. Catherine and Russell eventually moved into an apartment together in Houston, not too far from both of their families. While Mary Figueroa may not have been happy about Russell, she positively adored her grandsons. For the most part, everything seemed to be going well for Catherine, but something dark had been stirring beneath the surface, and Catherine's family were beginning to notice something was very wrong. As her family initially suspected, Russell had hardly any money to his name. Whatever fortune he'd gained from his days in High Five had long since dried up. While Catherine trained to become a boxer and continued to work as a sought-after fitness trainer, Russell didn't work, forcing Catherine to become the primary breadwinner. When she worked, her relatives often watched the boys. If Russell ever watched the boys, he charged Catherine $40 to babysit his own children. At the same time, he seemed to freely spend the money Catherine earned almost lavishly. When Catherine's family voiced their concerns about Russell's behavior, Catherine defended him, claiming he was an excellent father, reiterating how much she loved him. 
However, her family still weren't convinced, and their distaste for Russell only intensified. As they helplessly watched Russell take advantage of Catherine's loving and trusting nature, they knew nothing they could say or do would stop it from happening. Catherine had to come to that conclusion on her own. But when she started showing up with injuries like bruises and scratches, Catherine's family grew concerned. Even though she attempted to cover them up with makeup, they always noticed and couldn't help but wonder if Russell was abusing the boys as well. Mary soon began begging her daughter to leave Russell, pleading with her to do what was best for her sons. And her words hadn't fallen on deaf ears, because Catherine actually made several attempts to distance herself from Russell. But Russell's silver tongue always managed to convince Catherine to take him back again, claiming he was a changed man. He'd remind her of their children, begging her to keep the family together for their sake. But while Catherine was patient and understanding, there was only so much she could take. That's when she finally cut herself off from Russell altogether, choosing to focus her energy on raising her boys into successful young men. Catherine's mother and sisters couldn't help but feel relieved to see her finally taking her life back on her own terms. On Saturday, June 24th, Catherine visited her mother and sisters in Killeen, Texas. During the visit, Catherine's mother Mary felt as though something wasn't quite right with her daughter, but couldn't put her finger on it. After Catherine left, the troubling feeling Mary felt wasn't subsiding. She'd already watched her daughter go through so much with Russell, she could only hope. He hadn't managed to wiggle his way back into her life again. She had no way of knowing just how ominous her gut feelings actually were and how tragically their lives were about to change. On Tuesday morning, July 2nd, 2014, Catherine's training partner grew concerned when she didn't show up for their scheduled workout. Her mother and sisters hadn't heard from her since Saturday. Later that evening, at 6.10 p.m., Russell Neal suddenly showed up at the Houston Police Department. He told them he had an argument with his girlfriend and that she might need medical attention. Then he asked for a lawyer and fell silent. Immediately, paramedics were dispatched to Catherine's apartment. When they knocked down her door and rushed inside, they found Catherine's body lying on the floor. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Shockingly, her two sons were found locked in the adjacent room, just feet from Catherine's body. An autopsy determined her death was caused by a vicious beating and multiple stab wounds. When Catherine's family heard the devastating news, a blanket of despair fell over them. But the trauma was far from over. They still needed to identify her. Catherine's face was barely recognizable. Mary later admitted in a soft, crushed voice, the only way she could tell it was her daughter was by her teeth. Russell was immediately taken into custody and charged with first-degree murder but was released on a $100,000 bail. While outraged, Catherine's family needed to focus on her boys, who'd astonishingly been placed under Russell's mother's custody, a decision that devastated them. But their devastation soon turned to rage when they learned Russell was being allowed regular visits with the boys. One of the boys claimed to have seen blood on their father's shoes after their mother was dead. 
but Russell denied it and said it was only ketchup. Child Protection Services were immediately alerted to the potentially dangerous situation, and the boys were removed from Russell's mother and placed under the care of Mary Figueroa. Although the boys were now safe, the family still anxiously awaited justice for Catherine's murder as Russell continued to walk the streets of Houston, a free man. Two months later, Russell's bail was suddenly revoked because he had informed his bondsmen his name was no longer Russell Neal. It was now Jesus Christ, a sudden and bizarre shift in his sanity. After his astonishing proclamation, Russell was taken into medical custody and placed in Rusk State Hospital, a psychiatric facility. Understandably, Catherine's family was shocked at the bizarre turn of events, but her sisters didn't buy into the validity of this sudden twist. They didn't believe for a second Russell's actions were motivated by anything less than jealousy and anger. Russell hated that Catherine didn't need him and could get by just fine on her own. In fact, if anything, he'd started to become nothing more than excess baggage. As Russell prepared for a competency hearing to determine his ability to stand trial in 2017, the whole country was tuning in to the supposed crime of passion. Those who grew up with High Five were shocked to see one of their childhood idols in the legal spotlight. But for those familiar with Russell's family, the news of his crime was shocking for a completely different and more disturbing reason. Because Russell Neal wasn't the only member of his family to brutally murder an intimate partner. Russell's younger brother, Ronald, also murdered his partner, Stovani McGee. Stovani had met Ronald back in junior high, and the two became high school sweethearts. In an unsettling mirror of events, Stovani's family hadn't been fond of Ronald either. They thought he always seemed angry and was cocky as a result of Russell's involvement with High Five. But Stevani was set on who she wanted, and at 29 years old, her and Ronald got married on February 10, 2007. Not exactly the wedding day Stevani's mother had dreamt of. Stevani's family only grew more concerned when they learned Ronald wasn't earning any money. His mother paid for everything he needed, including paying for bills, while Stevani worked tirelessly every day to put food on the table. As if that wasn't enough to convince Stevani's family he was no good for her, they soon discovered he was physically abusing her. Simply Safe is an award-winning home security system, so you know it's engineered with the latest technology you want to keep your family safe. And what really sets Simply Safe apart is its people, highly trained security experts who are always there for you when you need them the most. These are people who truly care about keeping you safe. When an alarm goes off, a person who cares is there for you with a phone call to make sure you're okay. When an emergency happens, a person who cares is there for you by getting fire and police responders to your front door right away. Even if you're having problems setting up your system, a person who cares is there for you with a friendly chat and a quick resolution. The bottom line is, when you need them the most, Simply Safe is there 24-7 with people who care and experts trained to not only keep you safe, but to make you safe. 
Now that I'm old enough to stay home alone by myself, I can sleep a lot better at night knowing that there's people who care monitoring our security system, and that if anything bad ever happened, they would send help to us immediately. It's one of the many reasons U.S. News recently called Simply Safe the best home security of 2021. To learn more about how Simply Safe can help protect you and your family, visit simplysafe.com/madness today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com/madness. Stevani admitted Ronald often beat her with a belt and locked her in the closet. He was also prone to drinking heavily and fueling a drug habit, consuming a lot of the money she worked so hard for. In late 2007, Ronald came home from a wild night of drinking and taking drugs. Still in a haze, he viciously attacked Stefani, holding her down while spraying her face with disinfectant. After the attack, Stefani had him arrested and charged with assault. She'd had enough and immediately began filing for divorce, which relieved her family, who worried every day about her. Although Stevani and Ronald had only been married for 16 months, after watching Ronald's problematic behavior for years, in their minds, it was about time. Ronald, however, wasn't taking the divorce as easily as everyone would have liked. In an ominous warning, Ronald called Stevani's brother and cousin in a rage, ranting about just how pissed off he was about Stevani's decision to divorce him. He told Stevani's cousin to get her black dress ready. It was a threat no one wanted to believe Ronald was truly capable of. His words were frightening, but could he actually hurt Stevani? Tragically, on the day Stevani's divorce papers became official, Ronald took action. On June 5th, 2008, a chilling 911 call was made to the Arlington Police Dispatch. It was Stevani's 10-year-old son begging for police to come and help his mother. As the dispatcher struggled to reassure the child help was on the way, Stevani's terrified screams could be heard in the background, and the little boy's voice only grew more desperate as the screams grew louder. Suddenly, gunshots echoed through the phone, and the call went silent. Police rushed to Stevani's residence, where they found her two boys and their elderly grandfather unharmed on the front lawn. Stevani was still in the apartment with Ronald, who had barricaded the door. Police knew getting to Stevani wasn't going to be easy. Ronald still had a loaded gun, which he threatened to use on negotiators if they came too close. Next, a heart-pounding standoff ensued as Ronald hid behind the door. Stevani's sister-in-law, Denise Wesley, arrived on the scene to discover the tense and terrifying situation. Every second Ronald refused to budge, things grew more dire for Stevani. Denise was forced to make the heartbreaking call to the rest of the family, alerting them to what had happened. As soon as Stevani's brother Kevin heard the news, he immediately called Ronald, demanding to know what he'd done to his sister. He told Kevin... He'd shot Stevani, and then abruptly hung up. Stevani's family waited anxiously as the hours crawled by. Police negotiators desperately tried to convince Ronald to open the door, but he continued making excuses. As each hour passed, Stevani's life was slipping away. In a second call to Ronald, 
Kevin demanded he let the police in to help his sister, but Ronald refused, and Kevin's heart sank as he realized his brother-in-law intended to let Stevani bleed to death before he surrendered. Four long, frustrating hours passed before police finally decided to make their move. Stevani desperately needed medical attention, and they'd had enough of Ronald's sick game. Suddenly, SWAT members crashed through the barricade, and Ronald fired two shots at them as they rushed in. Thankfully, his shots missed, and he was out of ammunition, enabling officers to easily overpower him. Once Ronald was in cuffs, paramedics were finally permitted to rush in and check Stevani's vitals. But it was too late. Stevani was already gone. The grief and blinding fury Stevani's family felt was only intensified when Ronald initially tried to plead insanity. His actions, a crime of passion. He was then released on a $125,000 bond and given an ankle monitor. Stevani's family panicked. Ronald was a proven threat. They couldn't help but fear what may be in store for them as he awaited trial. Their terror only mounted when authorities warned the family they'd lost track of Ronald after he drove to Waco, Texas. Although Waco police wound up arresting Ronald over a minor drug charge, he was later released again on a $20,000 bond, despite the first bond for a murder charge. When confronted over the blatant carelessness, the judge in the case claimed he hadn't been informed. Frustration was felt on all sides, especially by the Arlington police and Lieutenant Blake Miller, who claimed Ronald Neal's best place was in jail until his trial. Thankfully, Ronald ended up driving back to Fort Worth and turning himself in. Stevani's family was finally able to rest easy. When Ronald reversed his plea of insanity and pled guilty, he was sentenced to 80 years in prison which he's serving at the Robertson facility of the Texas Correctional System. Only six years after Ronald killed his wife, Russell performed an eerily similar and brutal crime by murdering Catherine. Many wonder if Stevani's murder served as macabre inspiration for Catherine's. As time passed, Russell continued to claim his name was Jesus Christ and was deemed unfit to stand trial. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frizzani explains the criteria an offender has to meet in order to be considered incompetent to stand trial based on a medical perspective. An interesting consideration in the insanity plea is that many criminal offenders meet criteria for mental disorders, but that doesn't mean they meet criteria for the insanity plea. For example, an offender might have a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder, personality disorder, but that doesn't mean that someone with depression can just go around stealing things, for example, to feel better and get away with it. Struggling with mood instability, depression, anger, or impulse control doesn't mean that you can commit crimes and get away with it. One personality disorder that's common in criminal offenders is antisocial personality disorder in which a person has little to no remorse and believes the law doesn't even apply to them. If all offenders met criteria for insanity pleas just because they had a mental health disorder, few people would be convicted and go to prison, and the few mental hospitals we have would be full. 
many people convicted of crimes of passion or serial murder meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder, but not for the insanity defense. The insanity defense is actually based on the McNaughton test, which is based on an 1843 case assessing whether an offender knows the difference between right and wrong at the time that they committed a crime. There's another test, also called the Bronner test, that assesses whether the offender has a mental disorder that prevents them from committing a legal act, even if they know that it's wrong. Successfully pleading insanity doesn't mean an automatic approval or acquittal. It's only tried in 1% of felony cases, and of those, only about a quarter are granted. So 90% of that quarter granted have long documented histories of severe mental health issues. In most cases, psychiatrists appointed by both the prosecution and the defense teams agree that the individual meets criteria for the plea deal because of this documented history of mental illness. We don't have a lot of accessible public information on Mr. Neal's mental health history. Police did reportedly state that Mr. Neal knew he was hurting his wife when he killed her. We also know that in Texas, the state's definition of insanity requires much more than a history of domestic violence. It requires that a crime was a direct result of severe mental disease, meaning that the offender did not know that his or her conduct was wrong. Furthermore, the mental disorder cannot have been manifested just because the offender repeatedly offended. So for example, just because an offender repeatedly broke the law or had antisocial conduct, that cannot be the only criteria for insanity. There's a lot of information in this case that the public is not privy to, but if Mr. Neal met criteria for the insanity defense, then he may have truly had delusions about his identity and many other symptoms of mental illness with a reported history. We just don't know what those are. So some mental disorders that could meet criteria for that would involve something that caused an individual to not know that his or her behavior was wrong at the time they committed it. After being reevaluated several times, Russell was finally found competent to stand trial. Margot, a former military attorney, as well as the creator and host of the true crime podcast Military Murderer, explains from a legal perspective the difference between sanity and incompetency. Insanity and competency are two different things. We often hear of people either pleading not guilty by reason of insanity or just being found not guilty by reason of insanity. But an insanity plea or an insanity defense has to do with a person's mental state at the time of the actual crime. After someone is arrested and charged, though, it is a person's constitutional right to meaningfully contribute to their defense. Simply put, that means you have to be competent to stand trial. This has to do with a person's mental state leading up to trial. In the state of Texas, a person is incompetent to stand trial if they don't have the capacity to consult with their attorney in a meaningful manner, or if they cannot comprehend a rational or factual understanding of the proceeding against them. The presumption is that a defendant is competent, unless found to be incompetent by a preponderance of the evidence. Incompetency can be contested by either party 
or it can be recognized by the court. According to the Texas District and County Attorneys Association, competency determinations are actually kind of rare. In fact, nationally, competency hearings occur at a rate of 50,000 to 60,000 annually, with only one in five of those defendants being found incompetent. If a court has sufficient evidence of a potential competency issue, then a mental health expert is appointed to examine the defendant. During the mental health expert's examination, the expert is looking for the defendant's ability to understand the charges filed against them and the potential consequences of the pending criminal charges. The expert wants to know the defendant's ability to be able to communicate with their attorney, for example, the ability to provide pertinent facts that can assist in their defense, or better yet, the defendant's ability to strategize with their attorney, or at minimum, be able to make reasoned choices. The expert wants to know whether or not the defendant understands the adversarial nature of criminal proceedings and whether or not they can exhibit appropriate courtroom behavior. And finally, the expert must consider whether the defendant understands his or her ability or option to testify. The mental health professional will also look at the defendant's history of any mental health illnesses or disabilities and any mental health medications taken at the time of the arrest and the charge. If the defendant is found incompetent, then all proceedings are ceased immediately. And if the defendant is charged with a felony or a violent offense, then they are either released on bail to seek outpatient treatment, which is unlikely, or they are committed to a jail-based competency restoration program. And as far as how long a defendant can be committed, a defendant in theory can be committed to competency restoration program to the maximum prison time allowed by the underlying crime. But of course, there has to be a reevaluation period, right? You can't just keep someone indefinitely. In this case against Russell Neal, the court found the defendant incompetent on September 24, 2015, and ordered him committed for an initial 120 days. At the halfway mark, the head of the facility in which Russell Neal was treated, he requested a 60-day extension, which was granted by the court. And that went back and forth and back and forth until Russell was finally found competent to stand trial. Once found competent, then the criminal proceedings will begin where they left off before the competency determination. In February 2020, Russell Neal waived his right to a trial by jury. He also waived the appearance, confrontation, and cross-examination of witnesses, and his right against self-incrimination. Russell then pled guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He also waived any right to an appeal. Finally, Catherine's family saw Russell put away for his actions, a sentence they feared would never come. While the Neal family are still able to freely visit their sons in prison, Stevani and Catherine's families only have tombstones to visit. Although Mary Figueroa will never spend another moment with her beautiful, loving daughter, She's chosen to dedicate herself to raising her grandsons, easing them through the lingering trauma of their mother's death, while protecting her legacy from any further harm. In the wake of such unimaginable tragedy, Catherine's family still hopes to leave a message for everyone. Watch for signs of abuse and violence in the lives of people you love. Listen and pay attention to warning signs. 
Remember, life is fragile and easily shattered. Once a loved one is gone, nothing is ever the same. I'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Christina Frazzani and Margot from the podcast Military Murder for sharing their insights in this episode. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Corey Talks. Hello, I'm Corey O'Connor. I'm from Australia, and no, I don't believe I've ever said g'day, mate. Cliches aside, I'd like to tell you about my podcast, Corey Talks. It's a mix of politics from home and abroad, social issues, technology, quirky stories doing the rounds of the internet, and the odd interview. I really like to hear from listeners with their views on the topics that I present. Find the Corey Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out CoreyTalks.com. That's Corey without the E. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E